Good to have you on, by the way. We, we must be approaching a hundred percent participation from the, the famous, <laughs> the famous Milne DM the now. Milne DM, yeah, yeah, because yeah, we finally we finally had Max on earlier this. I was week. going to ask you about that actually, whether you'd had him on to talk all things Benison. We haven't done the Ben episode yet. No, that oh, is still long promised. You need to get him on. You need to get him on to do that. That'd be great. The Ben Lawmaster. Yeah, he is the absolute authority on all things Ben. Yeah, totally. <laughs> His knowledge Literally wrote the book on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. his knowledge of Benism. It. It's like that <laughs> guy, but like not a complete boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's that level of knowledge, but about something actually cool. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Geraint, I was saying to Tom like <laughs> earlier. I, I DM'd him and I saw that that like there was a message from like more than a year ago where I was oh, like, like, yeah, man, we'll do this episode soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we go. We got round to it, didn't we? Yeah, exactly. I, I, you know, I meant it. I'm a man of my word. <laughs> Again, it's, it's just one year. It's, it's more timely than managing to get Max on in the end, you know? That was about three years we were sort of idly talking about that. Opposing the government and opposing the Conservatives, I'm afraid it's the hard left who want to tighten their control. They want to uh, sideline uh, moderate voices. I don't think anybody should be surprised about that is the nature of the hard left. And of course, we know that the hard left famously cannot tolerate any who dissent. Are the hard left, What's Chris? Well, we know who the hard left are, who associate with the hard left. You just said that we were. Right, to right wing, the hard left agenda, printing money, nationalisation without compensation, that sort of hard left wing position, hard sort of left, the hard 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 left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, the hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, hard left, the 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 hard left, hard left, hard But yeah, should we get into it? I just yeah. want to generally go into the events of conference and maybe, Tom, you can like explain them to people a little bit because it's obviously all quite labyrinthine mm-hmm. and people might not know the significance within the Labour Party's internal processes of certain yeah. things that have happened. Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Real Politic. I'm Jack Brain Reed. I'm joined by my co-host, Geraint, at Wario Tifo. Hello. We've got a very special guest with us, a real thought leader on the left. For me, at least. I'm not kidding when I say I have always deferred to this guy on most matters political, but especially pertaining to the struggle for socialism within the Labour Party. Yeah. Emphasis on the word struggle. Yeah, yeah, the arduous struggle. But also, our friend we've got on today is an authority on socialist cinema with a brilliant YouTube playlist of many things that I would recommend you watch that I'll link in the show description for this episode. He is an editor and writer for New Socialist, has written some of the publication's finest pieces. He's also contributed to bastions of socialist thought such as The Guardian. (laughs) Uh, I believe, Tom, you've been given Hadley Freeman's column. Oh, yeah, yeah. That would go down well with the readership, I'm sure. 
they've, they've recognised for changing <laughs> political winds. Better late than never, or too late, possibly. You know. Yeah. I think the exact words were, "He doesn't match our editorial line on pretty much anything, but like he's a bit less weird about Woody Allen, so get him in." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's any Woody on that long playlist. No, no absolutely not. <laughs> Today on Real Politic, we are joined by our friend Tom Blackburn at Malays Forever on Twitter. Hello, Tom. How'd you do? Very good. And yeah, it's great to have you on the show because, like I say, you've always been one of the... Oh God, I don't want to use the phrase thought leaders again. <laughs> I said it ironically the first time. So I'm, I'm quite happy to make do with the term Twitter gobshite. You know, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, okay, one of the finest gobshites on the Twitter uh, thank you. And a real guru of real politic thought for as long as our show has existed, in all honesty. What Jack's trying to get at is, if you've been listening to us a long time, you've, you've definitely heard us trying to sort of pass his ideas off. For that. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you need Milne-like figures like Tom behind the scenes pulling the strings uh, puppeting us we've got Tom on today because I thought that it would be good to get somebody on the show who could maybe articulate to our audience some of the stuff that's been happening in the Labour Party in the last week and a bit Labour's just had its conference Keir Starmer did his brilliant speech written by Phil Collins. And he's really got everything back on track. The party's electable now rather than left wing, you know, the two binary choices that they were presented with. But a lot of tricky, labyrinthine, internal party process stuff has happened in that time. And I thought Tom might be able to break it down. So I'm, I'm going to start with a leading question. Just imagine I'm like Laura Koonsberg or someone. <laughs> so, so, Mr. Blackburn, this has been a historic defeat for the left, has it not? Actually, there's some reasons for optimism, I think, out of the conference. I was expecting it to be a bit more demoralising than perhaps it was. The big story was obviously the real changes that have passed. They tried to bring back the Electoral College for leadership contests, which is kind of the holy grail of the Labour right. And what that would have done is it would have given a third of the vote to constituency parties, i.e. ordinary members. Another third of the vote would have gone to affiliates, so trade unions. And another third of the vote would have gone to the PLP. So that would have given the PLP, which is obviously dominated by the right, an effective veto. And it would have meant that a left-wing leadership candidate would stand no chance of winning. So they didn't succeed in getting that, mainly because Starmer, it appears, dropped a bollock and failed to consult trade union leaders in advance. So he went to the Tulo meeting before conference and he got a bit of a tongue lashing. So what they had to do instead, because they couldn't get the Electoral College through, was raise the nominations threshold for leadership elections. So now if you want to get on the ballot, you've got to get 20% of the PLP to nominate you. And obviously that puts it beyond the reach of the socialist campaign group on its own. And when you think about what happened in 2015, when Corbyn just got on the ballot because other MPs from other sections of the party lent him nominations, they're not going to do that again, except maybe like Barry Guy. So it makes it very difficult for the Socialist Campaign Group now to make its presence felt in leadership elections. But that real change was only passed narrowly. So it's possible that it could be overturned in the coming years. But there's all the real changes as well. I mean, they've brought in a six-month membership requirement for mm. voting rights in a leadership election. So on the off chance, somebody runs to the Labour leadership, people outside the party like the look of the candidate and think, OK, I'm going to join and vote for this person. The rule book actually says, no, you can't do that. 
that was a bureaucratic trick pulled yes. in 2016, wasn't it? But I think they got rid of that for the election, but Starmer won. So lots of Lib Dems and people. So yeah, that's right. I think, I think that is right, yeah. And what yeah. they also did in 2016, of course, was they jacked up the cost of being a registered supporter from £3 yes. to £25. Well, now registered supporters have gone all together. So okay. it's just it's only members and affiliated trade union members who can vote in leadership elections. People who aren't members of the party, can they vote in leadership elections if they're a member of an affiliated trade union? If you pay into the political fund, then yeah, you'll okay. be entitled to a vote. Although I think the bureaucracy will be clamping down on that. So you don't think people like suspended from the party are going to be able to circumvent no. that? No, I think they'll be going over it with a fine tooth comb. Yeah, there is really, I think, an unhealthy level of scrutiny on ordinary grassroots members within the Labour Party now. I think you shouldn't be invisible to the party, but I don't think it should be such a heavy hand when it comes to just grassroots members. So they've changed the rules so that it's going to make it pretty much impossible for a genuine left-wing leader to be elected. Because even if all 36 members of the so all right of 34 or 36 i'm yeah. confused by the numbers <laughs> <laughs> even if every member of the socialist campaign group got behind a candidate they would still need another four to six <laughs> mps yeah. and i'm not even sure if those numbers factor in the fact that jeremy corbyn and claudia webb don't have the labor whip so they would right. be able to nominate anyone and there's absolutely no guarantee whatsoever that every member of the socialist campaign group would want to nominate one of their own. For yeah, yeah. And they wouldn't be able to agree, I think, on which candidate it would be. Because obviously Clive Lewis would fancy it, and I think John Trickett would as well. So there'd mm. be a kind of remain-leave split there as well. After what Rebecca Long-Bailey, and frankly, after what Corbyn went through, it yeah. really must seem a bit of a poison chalice at this yes. point to be the yeah. standard bearer of the left. Absolutely. It's a big thing to take on. And we've got some really good young left-wing MPs coming through, like Bel Ribeiro-Addy and, and Zara Sultana, both of them have made a really big impression. Mm. But they're still very early in their careers, and to put them forward as leadership candidates at this stage, I think, would be asking too much of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Bell is in a leadership role of the campaign group, isn't yeah, she? Yeah. But I think it's Zara who people on the left are looking at and seeing a future leader there. Yes. Um, and I think she genuinely is an inspiring figure and could quite possibly win an election within the party. But the Labour right... The worry obviously... is she's sort of young enough that people almost forget how young she is because she's so good at the messaging side of things. Yeah. yeah. It would sort of risk stopping the window of her being almost a perfect leader in 10 years' time if we try and do it in a year's time. The thing is, the Labour right, they look at a figure like that and they're terrified because they know that she could beat them fair and square. So what they've done is that they have effectively stacked the system against people on the left, because they know that in a fair contest, a left-wing candidate, be they Jeremy Corbyn or Keir Starmer, by many people who voted for him's perception, uh, is going to win. And this seems to almost go unremarked Mm. in the press. If the Labour right had this divine right to lead the party, then would they need to do this? Wouldn't yeah. a more democratic a system be more beneficial to them? Yeah, no, I, I think that's true. I mean, all these rule changes, they're kind of an assertion of bureaucratic strength and power, but they're also a concession of political weakness. I think they recognise that they haven't got 
the ideas, they haven't got the dynamism, they haven't really got the talent that can inspire people, bring new people into the party and win them the leadership on their merits. So when people on the Labour right brief sympathetic journalists that at conference there was an attempt at a coup against Keir Starmer by figures <laughs> on the Labour left, in which you can feel the hand of Schneider and Milne, you know, the sinister string-pulling yeah. uh, figures behind Corbynism. What the fuck are they actually talking about? Because <laughs> I don't think they actually believe it, but what was the left doing in resistance to the Starmer leadership's plans to consolidate their grip on the party that is such an unacceptable affront to the Labour right? Well, I think it's interesting that journalists don't seem to raise any kind of eyebrows at the fact that Starmer basically lied to win the leadership election. The whole pitch was a pack of lies, but that's the only way the Labour right can win. It can win by rigging the rule book, or it can win by just pretending to be more left-wing and more radical than it actually is. Mm. But the thing is, I think most, certainly most lobby journalists don't really think that ordinary Labour members have a legitimate role in choosing party leaders and obviously potential prime ministers. So no. it doesn't concern them. They're kind of fair game to be hoodwinked ordinary Labour members as far as most political journalists are concerned. Sonia Soda from The Observer said, well, of course MPs should have more of a say in their leader than party members because they're so much more in touch with the general public. And I'm just yeah. like, sorry, have you been living in a fucking old boy situation for the past 20 years, locked in a room, except yeah. without the access to television that the guy yeah. in old boy had? <laughs> really? <laughs> MPs are in touch with the general public. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, the most fundamental received wisdom about politics is that there's a distance between politicians and the public. Uh, yeah, you only have to take one look at that PLP to realise that it's generally quite a mediocre bunch, but... Most MPs and political journalists are drawn from a similar kind of class background. They often went to the same universities. They may have mixed in the same sort of student politics circles. It's basically a professional managerial stratum, which basically thinks it has a divine right to run the Labour Party in perpetuity. It doesn't really know why it wants to run the Labour Party. It doesn't know what it would do with power if it had it. It just feels entitled to it. Yeah, 100%. There was an article written by Owen Jones a couple of days ago where he basically stuck the boot into Starmer. I think a bit too late, in my opinion. If we'd have been all opposing Starmer this much for the last few months, then we might have been able to turn some opinion and win some things at conference. But obviously he's not winning all this stuff fair and square. Mm. Like, shit is stacked against us, and it's not entirely Owen Jones's fault not putting <laughs> no, a boot into him every week in The Guardian. But he did this week. He said Keir Starmer is unprincipled, unelectable, he's a liar. You know, lots of good stuff. And the response from, like, people in the media has been fucking incredible. Yeah, um, <laughs> Robert Colville of CapEx, uh, the, <laughs> the ultra-capitalist new media <laughs> website, who is in charge of the think tank that Margaret Thatcher founded. The Centre for Policy Studies, I think. Oh, yes. yeah, that, that would yeah. be it. Yeah. So not a left-winger, not a Corbynista. No. Um, but he just said, 
well, you know, Owen Jones does kind of have a point. And he said it from a right-wing perspective. He was like, well, Starmer yeah. did promise Labour members stuff that isn't reconcilable with pursuing a centrist, moderate policy agenda that appeases the media and mm-hmm. would appease free marketeers like himself. There is a massive contradiction between what Starmer promised Labour members and what he appears to be planning to do. Whichever of the two Starmers you support... You should be able to see that there's a contradiction there. And then he just had that fucking dickhead Gabriel Milland who used to write <laughs> the, 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 the write racist articles for the Daily Express just in his mentions yeah. like, oh, what? So you think people should be bullied out of labour by anti-Semites? It's like, <laughs> hey, you don't have to worry that the CapEx guy is unduly sympathetic to Owen Jones and Corbynism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there's two people on the planet that are worried about that. It's Gabriel Milland and almost inevitably that Christian Nemitz guy because oh. he just thinks that everyone who's like a day younger than him is a communist <laughs> that's his whole thing the communists are about to take over tomorrow and he's very frightened about it yeah, I don't think he needs to worry so much though because as far as I can see Starmer's not interested in appealing to young people I mean no, this yeah. is one thing that kind of worries me because obviously Labour under Corbyn did very well among younger voters and when I say younger voters not all of them were really that young you're talking more like the under 40s yeah but now Starmer doesn't seem to know what to say to them just tried to talk to Keir Starmer about backing the Green New Deal bill and the 85 billion we need um, to transition to a green economy. He literally completely ignored me. Um, so is this how he treats his Labour members? Is this how he treats the young people, the future generations, um, not committing to the Green New Deal? Um, yeah. Wow. I think the Labour right recognises it to win consistent support from younger voters. It has to take radical action on housing and climate in particular. And it just, it has not got the stomach for that. It's too wedded to private ownership. It's too wedded to the market. So, I mean, what do you think of the agenda laid out at the Labour Party conference? To kind of turn this into another leading question, I just fundamentally think if it's a step back from what we had before, then it's inadequate. Mm. The world hasn't just sorted itself out since 2019. Yeah. Many things yeah. have got worse. Yeah, well, I mean, Rachel Reeves has announced quite big headline spending figures on climate change and what have you. But she's also renounced energy ownership, which would be central to any rapid transition stroke Green New Deal that's worthy of the name. So like I say, I just think these people are so ideologically wedded to the market They can't really think beyond it. And it's all very well announcing big spending figures. But if you're just going to splurge it at big business and not fundamentally re-engineer the economy, then you're really going to hide into nothing as far as I can see. I took one note and it's just Starmer liar. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, where's the lie there? Yeah, no, Um, we're done. We We can go on. (laughs) <laughs> Speaking of which, I was just having a quick check to see what the papers are saying today, and I've got the most spectacular guess of byline I've ever seen. So I'll give the headline, and assuming neither of you have seen this already, see if you can guess who it's by. Starmer's bonfire of promises is likely to see Labour's electoral chances crash and burn. <laughs> God, yeah. so many right-wing yeah. fucking tosses. Yeah. In a manner yeah. of speaking, yes. <laughs> John, no, no, I don't think it's John Crace, because I was just looking at John Crace's Guardian page just to see what he was John Crace's head. 
<laughs> no, John Crace is just a fickle little bastard. He's a true weather vane in the Tony Ben sense. Literally, he was like, oh, Starmer's done. I'm so sick of Starmer. He's so boring. And then he just did his conference speech and he's back on board. Ridiculous. Well, it's Starmer daddy and all that. Yeah. yeah, just, yeah. <laughs> they, they usually get back on board with Starmer when they realise that he isn't quite done with the left yet. He hasn't yeah. quite destroyed it. When, like, Corbyn speaks at a left-wing rally and they're reminded that these people yeah. still exist, they've yeah, not exactly. literally killed him and all of us. But they're yeah, just I, like... I noticed that Tom Peck from The Independent was very angry about the world transformed and Richard Bergen and all those guys appearing on stage. Tom just furious that anyone still holds laughing opinions and argues yeah. for them. Well, all his EDL mates are fuming at him about it. So that's, <laughs> that's what's out there in the world, you know? He's just reflecting public opinion. <laughs> Can I reveal who this spyline was? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry, Garai. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing to say about the article itself. It's exactly as boring as you'll think when I tell you who it's by. Oh, oh, let me guess, let me guess. Is it some cunt? <laughs> yes, it is some cunt. It's specifically Michael Chesham. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. Oh, oh, oh. He's back my... on the left again, guys. Welcome back. Welcome back. I don't think he was ever actually pro Starmer. He just, no, like, that's laid... exactly what I think he was. He laid the groundwork. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Len McCluskey has a good line in his book, which is worth reading. Uh, oh, yeah. He, he calls Paul Mason and Laura Parker Remainitis super spreaders. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah, so you've yeah. obtained, I guess, a, yeah. a review copy. Of, uh, no, I just had it on pre-order. I didn't. Oh, I didn't you just, just it, yeah, you just had yeah. to get this shit like pre <laughs> smashing <laughs> that pre-order button. <laughs> <laughs> right. So yeah, you've got Len McCluskey's new book. Yeah. Uh, what's it called? Always Red. Always Red. Yeah. Yes, I hear that the hand of Alex Nuns can be felt in this one. Apparently so. Yes. Both Nuns and McCluskey. Good people as far as I'm concerned. There's some good bits in that book from what I've seen. Bits about Michael Duggar, bits yeah, about Tom bit Watson. Sad, the Despicable Duggar. That's, uh, <laughs> the Despicable Duggar, that's what McCluskey calls him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love the bit he's like, Michael Duggar apparently thought that his media brief in Corbyn's first Shadow Cabinet involved briefing the media on every single thing that happened in Shadow Cabinet meetings. Yeah, like putting Dracula in charge of the bug bank, as McCluskey puts it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, now might be a good time, actually, to dig up what is maybe now, like, my most popular tweet ever, which is just quoting some, <laughs> some art. well, at <laughs> least on this account. So this was an article on Unheard, the cow website. It was by Tanya Gold. I don't really... Jimmy Savile. I've seen the picture of her with Jimmy Savile, he could have photobombed her like Corbyn did Angela Rayner. I don't know. I'm not judging. No, I am judging, actually. That's really bait. But that's like the only thing I know about her, that there's a widely circulated picture of her with Jimmy Savile. So I'm not coming at this with a pre-existing beef against this person. Although it's I have funny because some... like, every time she angers the left or picks a fight with the left or whatever, she'll like steam into people's mentions, do all the usual stuff, and you just reply with... <laughs> you're published next to Tacky, like you do with anyone that runs in a spectator, and she usually just goes, yeah, all right, fair point, and goes away again. It's quite funny. <laughs> Most of the others will be like, oh, no, that's look, that's a completely false argument. Actually, Tacky's great. Or whatever, yeah, the Vermacks you know? are actually She's quite like, yeah, good right. on anti-Semitism. That's, that's pretty bad, fair enough. <laughs> it just shows how fucked up the whole discourse in this country is, that media outlets like the spectator and people who write for it get to act as sort of moral arbiters on racism, you know? Yeah. It just makes no sense at all. Yeah. 
I mean, Tanya Gold's very much a sort of full-on opinions for hire one, isn't she? Because she's a sort of vaguely left-liberal writer for the... I can't remember if it's The Guardian or The Observer, but one for of Tribune, them for Tribune, apparently, when years. it was edited by former yes. Real Politic yep. guest yes. Mark Seddon. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Nick Cohen used to write for Tribune as well back in the day. I think Seddon was doing a kind of Seamus Milne... I wonder how overnight Guardian it was that he just became an absolute dickhead. Nick Cohen? Yeah. He was writing for Tribune in the early 2000s, and yeah. obviously by the time of the Iraq War, he was a full-on neocon, so it must have been a pretty quick conversion. There must have been some seeds there for it to take hold so quickly when the war on terror and all this geared up. Although, I mean, from what I've heard, Tanya Gold's stuff in Tribune was quite anti-left, so maybe some of Nick Cohen's stuff was as well. That's why I'm saying a Seamus Milne at the Guardian thing that I think Seddon was doing. I think he was trying to publish a plurality of opinions on the broad left. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, I think Cohen's articles (laughs) when he was writing for Tribune were quite left-wing, but the magazine did go on a bit of a rightward trajectory from the mid-80s onwards when it broke with Ben. It was never really a Blair-eye magazine, I don't think, but it realigned itself behind the soft left in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, I think it moved a bit back to the left under Seddon. Um, yeah. But no, it probably still had elements of soft left and meltier people. Anyway, Tribune, you also write for them, I forgot to mention. Yeah, time. yeah, that's right, yeah, of course. Yeah, regular <laughs> columnist for them. So Tanya Gold wrote in this piece and unheard for Cow website. She went to the Socialist Campaign Group rally. I watched the stream of this and Lloyd Russell Moyle, I have my issues with him, but the man always brings it to deliver a barnstorming yeah, left-wing <laughs> speech. You can't knock him for fighting spirit. I mean, he was probably one of those Romania because <laughs> so many people would have seen these fucking great speeches by Lloyd Russell Moyle espousing yeah. this pro-EU bullshit. We will fight them on the beaches on election <laughs> night. <laughs> No, I mean, great orator, but he basically was playing the wrestling heel, as someone said to me. He knew how to G up the crowd, so he said with a real glee in his eyes, a shit-eating grin flickering across his face, he was like, Now, Starmer may be a nice man, and the reaction from the crowd was like, <laughs> Like, it was, you know, uh, to be honest, if someone had yelled cunt that loud, that would definitely have made it into this yes. old article. This has been a goddamn awful conference with a goddamn awful leadership. And the problem is he might be a very nice man. He is not a politician for the Labour Party. But yeah, there was a lot of booing, which leads me to believe that Lloyd Russell Moyle knew what he was doing. Uh, he is an expert stump speecher, you know, he always brings it at the left-wing rallies, whatever shit he's been saying, like, the day before. And it felt like he'd seen the video of Paul Mason saying that Starmer was a good man and getting resoundingly echoed by the audience. <laughs> Keir Starmer, whatever you think about him, is is a is a straightforward you know, and and compassionate. No, no, he is a straightforward and compassionate person. Well, if you don't think so, why? What? Well, don't bother voting for him then. If you think that Starmer and Johnson are the same kinds of people, you're deluded. 
okay? Yeah, Russell might feel have been knocking about at TWT and you know, gauge the general mood of the crowd, I think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think he knew what he was doing, but she says something like he made the cardinal sin of calling Starmer a nice man. <laughs> there, there are jeers, Tanya Gold writes. Kia out, then Keith, Keith, Keith. It sounds quite chilling when they shout at you. <laughs> <laughs> I have never been afraid anywhere as a journalist except with the far left. Yeah, like the far right at the (laughs) spectator parties are fine. They're really chill. That's crazy. Like anybody who's spent any time around Momentum members or TWT knows that like the nicest, most earnest people you could ever meet at a political meeting. Just the least threatening people ever. I mean, it's really disgusting that Starmer has effectively spent his whole time at leadership legitimising this baseless smear about, well, Labour members more generally, but especially ones on the left. Yeah, no, that's one thing that really does wind me up because... You look at what these people are after, objectively, they're not asking for very much. Like, they're asking for a decent welfare state. They're asking for security in the workplace. They're asking for housing justice. All of this stuff it should not be beyond the pale for any Labour government, even a right-wing one. And yet, because of that, they've been kicked from pillar to post. They've been subject to the most unscrupulous campaign of slander and hostility to the point where the last general election, you had Labour canvassers being abused and attacked in the street. And yeah. no one in the press has expressed any kind of contrition for that, which I think is really kind of disgraceful. They are so much on the other side of what's happening. There are two opposing kind of classes in this case. There obviously is a very literal class system at play in this as well. But there's the people in the press who are on one side inciting it. And then there's the people who are on the ground camp were who were in 2019, probably fucking many of them aren't anymore, on the ground campaigning for the Labour Party, who are copping all the shit. Literally, these are two completely opposing forces, and I think it's really hard to step back from one and concede anything to the other. Obviously, I feel like one of these sides is more legitimate than the other, Mm. uh, so I'm not trying to both sides it, but I'm not going to stop sticking up for the people who slogged it for Corbynism and copped all that shit for it. And the people who were throwing that shit at everyone certainly have an interest in continually cleansing their hands over what they've done. Yeah, there's a confluence of interest as well between politicians and national political journalists, so Westminster lobby hacks, neither of them want ordinary people playing an active day-to-day role in politics and actively shaping the agenda. They think that should be a matter for them. You know, politicians Mm. and journalists are all kind of tied together. I think that's why the Corbyn insurgency, if you like, was met with such hostility because they looked at these people and they recognised that they were opposed to the power and privileges of the insiders. And that was why there was such a deranged rearguard battle waged in the press and by the PLP for five years. Yeah, because they know that they're insiders and they want to believe that that is a meritocratic thing. But they've worked hard to get there. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like Michael Young suggested in The Rise of the Meritocracy, that the meritocracy is the most callous, the most heartless ruling class of all, because it (laughs) believes it is where it is entirely on its own merits. Yes. Just to continue with these extracts from the tanya gold piece on the world transformed (laughs) she says the crowd go back to shouting keith 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 which i believe is the real purpose of this rally i do not know why they (laughs) think this taunt is so deadly but it does expose their classism and ageism 
taunting the lower middle class boomer who really is called Keith. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Fucking hell, man. Unreal. Outrageous that these people should abuse a knight of the realm and a poor old QC. In that classist fashion, I know. Yeah. What do you think of all this weird class politics of British mainstream political discourse, which is advocating socialism, not pro-working class. The name Keith, literally the most working class thing in the world. Yeah, well, Mark Fisher talks about the return of class without class politics. I Uh, think that is what we've seen specifically over the last five years or so. It helps because by definition, if you're a socialist, whatever your class background, even if it is absolutely rock solid working class, you can never really speak on behalf of the working class because you are inherently illegitimate. You have these, like, Starmer suit types who genuinely maintain that, like, Ian Lavery and John Trickett have these sort of effete metropolitan concerns. (laughs) Yeah, that's a crazy thing. I mean, if someone like Ian Lavery isn't a legitimate working class voice, then... Geraint, have you been... Oh, no, sorry, I was like, have you been looking at the John Crace articles? And I I realised that the one you've tweeted is the Michael Chesson one. Um... Yeah, I've not been following the John Crace articles. Obviously, that's a huge loss, but I'm trying to guess which one's him from the byline list captions. I've stumbled on a Friedland. Jonathan Friedland has has remembered that Boris Johnson's bad, so fair play to him. (laughs) Well... That's the thing, they've always been engaged in this dance for centrist commentary. No, of course we're not Tories. Of course we don't support Boris Johnson. We just really don't support the alternative. And now they do support uh, a a so-called alternative. Now there is no alternative. They support the quote-unquote alternative. And they are really fucking annoyed at anyone who doesn't. They're like... Guys, can't you see a lesser of two evils? Seriously. And then at the last election, they were just like, the blood on Corbyn's hands means that, alas, I must reluctantly cast my vote for the Conservative Party. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, it's like it's more a case of putting them at ease with their own conscience. You know, they don't like to think of themselves as Conservatives, whether small or big C. But in practice, even when a relatively mild programme of social democratic reform is put before them, they instinctively dislike it, and they wage this kind of jihad for five years. Fucking hell, does John Crace write articles every day? I mean, there's so many. <laughs> he wrote one on the world transformed. There's a picture Hi. of uh, Jeremy Corbyn there. He's saying it's like being in a time warp. Because, again, why haven't we given up our left-wing politics? It lost an election, which obviously centrist politics has never done. Like, yeah. so we should now adopt a politics that is the diametrical opposite to our own. Yeah, I mean, Starmer could have taken the bulk of that Corbyn programme, watered it down a bit, and still kept the majority of Labour Party members on board quite easily. But even that was too radical for this PLP. I think it was kind of obvious to me that he was never going to be able, even if he had the best will in the world, to stick to those pledges when he started bringing people like Matt Pound into his team and Labour first, when it was yeah, obviously... Like, were, people on the yeah. right of the party, like Paul yeah. Mason. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but when, when you've got Labour first, when you've got Labour first as your machine in the CLPs, then there's obviously going to be a quid pro quo attached, and that means the heart of any radical programme is going to be gutted. So I think you'd probably agree with my catchphrase that Starmerism is a right-wing ideological project, but... 
Do you think that's entirely by design or that's just kind of the way it's worked out due to the balance of forces? I think Starmer really is a restorationist. Starmerism is a restorationist regime. It's about putting the PLP and the right-wing party bureaucracy firmly in charge of the party and insulating it from any kind of democratic challenge in the future. Mm. I mean, what Starmer's own personal intentions were, I mean, I don't, I've not got a window into his conscience, but... When you look at his record as DPP, I'd find it hard to imagine that somebody with that kind of track record could be genuinely left wing. He's really he's a, a creature of the state security apparatus, if I'm honest. <laughs> Facts. Where was it that someone used the phrase counter revolution? Because just to go back to the thing of if these guys were really winning, they wouldn't have to keep suppressing democracy. I think it was a Robert Peston piece, actually. Oh, like, God. That's unusually to... candid. <laughs> yeah, to read another bit of some shit melt piece, because the only other quote I extracted from that Tanya Gold piece was that weird bit of sicko shit where she calls Starmer's speech thrillingly Blairite. Uh, <laughs> but Peston wrote this absolute load of fucking shit, which I think, Tom, you might dispute some things that Peston says in this piece. It's called Sakia Starmer gives Labour MPs their party back. So you yeah, know, well, that, that seems honest enough to be honest because that is what he is yeah. about. It's about putting them <laughs> back in charge. Well yeah, so bear in mind Peston admits to that framing. He describes it as a counter-revolution. He doesn't seem to think that there's anything kind of off about the fact that they need to do this. Mm. Um, he says until you know, you'll probably disagree with this. Until this week, and in the five years of Jeremy Corbyn's ascendancy, conference was a pact between the leader, Corbyn, and the members, the foot soldiers, he clarifies, to marginalise and even humiliate a majority of Labour MPs. Didn't do a fucking good job of it then. Yeah, I mean, in Len McCluskey's book... He describes how, despite his preference being for mandatory reselection, Corbyn basically pushing a compromise position yeah. that got trigger ballots, which are still incredibly hard to use to get your... Yeah, that's right. Have they been scrapped altogether by Starmer now? No, they've raised the threshold for trigger ballots, so you need the support of 51% of the branch parties and affiliates, so trade union branches, in a CLP to trigger a full selection process. But the trouble is, I mean, even before when it was only a third of branch parties or affiliates rather than both under Corbyn, that was the reform that was secured. But even then, when you're trying to trigger an MP and get a full selection process going, it's a negative process because you can't put forward an alternative candidate at that stage. Plus, you're opening yourself up to getting buckets of shit put on your head by the media. So a mm. lot of people in CLPs, even left-wing activists, they're generally not that confrontational. So they're very reluctant to take that kind of thing on. Yeah, that's why you had situations like Neil Coyle. Yeah. Uh, his CLP, I think, narrowly voted not to trigger him uh, yeah. because it would undermine party unity, despite yeah. Neil Coyle waking up every day and undermining the unity. Yeah, behaving absolutely disgracefully for five years. Yeah, so there is that kind of inbuilt imbalance to how this is perceived, both in the party systems and in the way it's reported in the media. The MP's incumbency always gives them them this air of greater legitimacy well as we brought up with the len mccluskey thing so ultimately jeremy corbyn's leadership 
although the members did actually want to quote-unquote marginalise and even humiliate, I wouldn't say a majority of Labour MPs, sadly, because we've just talked about that. Many just go, well, our MP may be a shithead, but it would cause more trouble than it's worth trying to get rid of them. Wrongly, I think. But the leadership wanted to keep the party united. And Peston just seems to kind of take MPs' word for how that played out. Uh, He says there was no doubt where sovereignty and power in Labour lay. Yeah, well, like McCluskey says in the book, the Corbyn leadership after 2017 was really desperate to hold the PLP together and just to keep the train on the tracks. So that was why Corbyn didn't go for open selection. And at the time, people blamed McCluskey. They blamed it on the union leaders. They said that they were the ones who weren't pushing for open selection. But it actually wasn't the case. It was the party leadership because they were so desperate to avert a split and everything was on winning the next election. And, you know, I, I can totally understand why, because Corbyn and McDonnell, by all accounts, are very hardworking, conscientious constituency MPs. And I'm sure that during the years of austerity, they were getting all kinds of horror stories from constituents. Yeah. And they felt a deep responsibility to them just to get in and do something to ameliorate the damage. But ultimately, it meant that they were trying to placate people who just would not be placated. That seems to suggest to me that there was some doubt where sovereignty and power in Labour lay. If the parliamentary party were effectively able to hold the leadership hostage on all these issues. Peston continues, Today, MPs have got their party back. For the first time in years, it is possible to talk to them and learn where their party is heading. Like, fucking hell. I mean, it's making it sound as if it's Corbyn's fault that his MPs (laughs) just didn't keep up with political changes and trends. Rather than simply counselling them that if they are deselected by members, there's a possible life beyond Westminster. Just like Peston offering amateur therapy to these MPs. Like, oh, don't worry, mate. Oh, I know a private healthcare con contractor who'll take you in i know a pr company will have you you only need to look at ian austin and john woodcock the peerages they got from the tories for services rendered these mps had nothing to worry about as far as their career process were concerned because someone was always going to see them right absolutely if it wasn't the tories it would be some corporate non-job you know like jamie reed ended up with yeah, or Chucker, or Lucy yeah, exactly. Georgia, yeah. or like yeah. practically everybody from the Blair government. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then you have some real spin, some real factional spin from Peston here in favour of Keir Starmer's efforts to rig the party. So he says, this transfer of power as a result of a pact between Keir Starmer and the big trade unions. Uh, again, that, that seems Which like fun. Yeah, but like, I don't, I don't think that Unite were... Okay no, GMB and Unison, yes, but not Unite. Or the you, CWU. Well, Unison got behind it. They eventually, at the last minute, voted yeah. for it after initially planning to abstain because there was a lot of objection within the union. And I feel like this is almost like the current executive who aren't going to be at the next Labour conference. They're going to be replaced by a new left-wing Unison executive. Yeah. It feels like them like pulling the ladder up behind them. I think there's a Labour link election this year in unison, so that will do a lot to decide what positions the union takes at conferences going forward. It does have a left-wing national executive as well, yeah. but it has a right-wing general secretary because there were three left candidates and the vote was split between them at the last election. Fucking hell. Uh, yeah, Bastani had a point really. about the left and discipline. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's oh well, I mean, since it's been unison, it's been a predominantly kind of right-of-centre union. 
to have a left leadership of Unison would have been a, a really significant thing. Yeah, because I mean, in terms of membership, I think it's a bigger union than United. It's, yeah, it's about neck and neck, I think. Although I think Unite has historically given more to the Labour Party, but that might change now, I don't know. And yeah, well, under, so. under Corbyn, yeah, Unite were the ones really stumping up the cash. I think McCluskey says they covered the cost of 70% of the 2017 election campaign, Fucking whereas hell. GMB and Unison basically sat it out. But what's happened is they're still, obviously, they're still paying affiliation fees, but they've reduced, this is Unite, they've reduced their affiliation to the party by 50,000, which means they get fewer votes at conference, but they also give less money to the party, and they're not giving one-off payments like they were under Corbyn, separate from the affiliation fees. So, yeah, this pact between Keir Starmer and the big trade unions, citation needed, their critics would call it Faustian. Number one, makes it harder for members to throw out sitting MPs. Number two, reduces the ability of left-wing entryists to determine a leadership election. <laughs> it shows how clueless these journalists are. They don't actually know what entryism is. Entryism is when one organisation enters another as an organisation and it retains its own internal discipline. It's not just left-wing people joining the Labour Party. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, people I don't is... like having a vote. Yeah, Terrible. Yeah. Entryism. Yeah, it's invoking this complete fallacy that Corbyn won in 2015 because a load of quote-unquote entryists on yeah. the left yeah, joined, the, yeah. Yeah, joined the party either as members or registered supporters to vote for him. It's um, hilarious. It's a conspiracy theory masquerading as serious analysis. It's just a joke. And of course Corbyn won a majority of the membership. So did Keir Starmer. But Starmer yeah. also had a lot of people who had just joined the party voting. But, yeah. You know, by this definition, this wrong definition, they were entryists, but they certainly weren't left-wing. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I dare say a lot of the people who voted for Starmer knew what they would be getting. They knew that the campaign rhetoric wouldn't last five minutes once they actually won the leadership. But those 10 pledges in particular helps him win a key swing constituency, the kind of demoralised left vote. Yeah. And that, I think, was what really made the difference. I still don't think that what Starmer's doing, I don't think that the general tone of his project is the centre of normal centre-left politics. I don't think it does reflect how kind of wishy-washy Labour supporters think. It is reflective of this really small ideological fringe within the party. Yeah. Well, like I say, most MPs think that what they were doing before Corbyn was absolutely fine, and they Mm. just need to go back to that, basically. They don't really need to learn any lessons from the last few years, except you need to rig the rule book so that left-wingers can't win. They don't even seem to particularly want to go back to Ed Miliband so much as that little period where Harriet Harman yeah, was yeah, in exactly. charge and Chris Leslie was the shadow chancellor. Yeah, yeah uh, that's which the idea. Was, was all like Labour friends of landlords, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, we have to be aspirational, all that shit that basically lost Andy Burnham, his golden chance to become leader of the party. Yeah, um, that's the worst campaign in Labour history, according to McCluskey. So, <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, yeah. I think it's probably a fair comment. Masterminded by Michael Duggar archenemy of a friend of the show, Matt Zarb Cousin. Peston continues that the new reforms massively toughen up disciplinary procedures against anti-Semites and other toxic bigots. I feel like the voice of journalistic impartiality kind of slips when he says another and other toxic bigots. I mean... What other toxic bigots are you talking about? Because, yeah, Labour, obviously, they passed the EHRC recommendation. Yeah. Well, one thing that's worth mentioning as well, the change to trigger ballots, a few people have muttered that it was really intended to protect Rosie Duffield. Oh! So people have actually been referring to it as the Duffield Amendment. 
Oh, wow, because she appeared on fucking Graham Linehan's stream yeah, the other day. Yeah, because she's trying to make herself into a martyr for quote-unquote gender-critical views. Yeah, it didn't fucking work, though. Like, nothing happened. Like, people no. were like, oh, she's really done it now. A few days later, nothing. <laughs> Literally, yeah. I don't think that the Starman leadership have any interest in combating transphobia. I think a lot of individuals on the centre-left are pro-trans rights. Again, yeah. it is the mainstream of left-of-centre opinion is yeah. pro-trans rights. There's a, there's a generational gap as well, I think. The younger Labour rightists tend to be genuinely pro-trans rights. Yeah, but I think, again, that ideological fringe that is powering the Starmer project, I think many of them view it as just kind of another... Yeah, yeah. like among, the, among the liberal commentary, transphobia is kind of hegemonic, it's bizarre, really. They view it as sort of loony left pet project, yeah. akin to the way that Neil Kinnock and his supporters viewed gay rights in the 80s. Yeah, that's right. And of course, the press campaign against trans people is the mirror image of that waged against gay people in the 90s. Yeah, it's, it's just relentless bile and hatred, you know, it's absolutely disgraceful. But I wonder if here Robert Peston, by other toxic bigots, he means left-wingers. <laughs> <laughs> Socialists, like people who think things should be nationalised. Exactly. People who are so toxic and bigoted as to want a more equal society. I, I think ultimately, if you think that the Labour Party's disciplinary procedures after the last year or so are going to be run in accordance with any kind of natural justice. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is the thing, like, you can have you can have the best code of conduct, but it's still going to be administered by people who are just complete arseholes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as I can see, the way that Labour's disciplinary processes are run since Corbyn stepped down has only become more factional. Yeah, well, Corbyn's suspension itself is a good example. Exactly. All the talk was of an independent process, but here's Starmer not really clear about whether he took the decision to withdraw the whip from Corbyn and suspend him or whether it was David Evans. He's kind of contradicted himself at different times. Yeah, although, you know, Starmer can lie as much as he wants and everyone's just like morally justified and very clever. Uh, Yeah, exactly. So Peston describes this consolidation of power in the hands of the Parliamentary Labour Party as a return almost to the beer and sandwiches Labour governance of the 1970s. I mean, Tom, you probably know more about the history of that. I know that's a kind of Harold Wilson thing of him hashing out backroom deals for trade unions. But I mean, that's bollocks, isn't it? Well, trade union membership in the late 70s, early 80s was 12 or 13 million. So it's more than double what it is today. But this whole beer and sandwiches trope, it's just just a sneer. It's a sneer at the idea that the representatives of working people might actually have a legitimate say in the affairs of government. Yeah, so it's saying he needs to cut not just the members out, but also the unions. Yeah, just don't listen to anybody other than hacks, basically. Yeah, Phil Collins and... I'm trying to make that a bit like do yeah, with a drum beat yeah. every time I mention <laughs> Phil Collins. Like, you know, the so. shit Phil Collins. Exactly, like his pieces are terrible. There's no Peter Gabriel to like filter out the <laughs> commercial <laughs> instincts. It's incredible. If you experienced only their work and didn't know what they looked like, you would think the lesser Phil Collins was the one famous for being bald. <laughs> <laughs> the one who, Noel Gallagher said, vote for Tony Blair and Phil Collins will leave the country. Little did he know that he was just <laughs> elevating a different terrible Phil Collins in his well, life. Well, right, Phil Collins. <laughs> apparently Genesis Phil Collins never said that about threatening to leave the country if Labour got in. So Genesis Phil Collins is actually probably less right-wing than the Phil Collins who's writing speeches for Starmer. 
<laughs> and probably even Noel Gallagher as well. I mean, yeah. these days, at least. <laughs> I mean, that is quite funny. You've Noel Gallagher just made that up, though. Fair play. Just like a bit of false news. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there was one line about the Rachel Reeves speech. Most of it seemed to be just kind of like describing what she was saying, but being like, oh, it's very safe, but it's not too safe. He says, in an economic sense, it is not out there in any sense. <laughs> That really feels like a line written hurriedly in a hotel room at conference day <laughs> while racking a line. <laughs> it's more syntactically bad than anything. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, Reeves, since she got in, has not really steered too far away from the direction that Annalisa Dodds was taking it, but that's not really saying very much. I just, when you look at Rachel Reeves' past track record, specifically when she was shadow DWP secretary, yeah. And she was talking about outflanking the Tories on benefits from the right. I just don't see how you can have any kind of faith in somebody like that to implement any kind of transformative policies, really. Well, yeah. transformative for the better, I should say. <laughs> really horrifying rhetoric. Yeah, no, it, was, it was disgraceful. It really was. No, she, she's bad. Yeah, so Robert Peston concludes this piece of stenography for what he openly describes as a counter-revolution, with the cliché that the Labour left aren't interested in winning elections. He says about the Rachel Reeves speech, in some ways it was boringly mainstream. But again, mainstream like defined by the press, not actual public yeah. opinion. But Reeves secured an enthusiastic standing ovation. I mean, not course she did like what they're gonna do like not yeah every pretty much everybody gets a standing ovation at a labor conference you have to really do something extraordinary not to get one yeah labor members are about a thousand times more kind of polite and deferential yeah they're they're generally really nice people (laughs) yeah yeah, (laughs) they want their leaders to do well all right so this is how peston concludes perhaps even the party's most idealistic members are bored with being in opposition 11 years and counting well, the PLP weren't bored of being in opposition when they spent four and a half years trying to shit on the party and burn it down because they weren't running it. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just this kind of thing of, like, there's a binary choice between winning or being idealistic, which in this yeah. case means left-wing. Like, yeah, when they came closest on a left-wing programme than they had done in years. Exactly. And so, like, we were all out there campaigning for the party when that happened and trying to make them win... And by that definition, we were the ones not interested in winning, while the people, as you say, Tom, burning the party down, were the ones who were really concerned with no longer being in opposition. I mean, it is perverse. But it's part of this, it's the same as this preoccupation with Trotskyite entryists. These journalists have one view of the left, it's been baked in for decades, and nothing that actually happens in real life can dissuade them from it. They, yeah. just, they stick to that stereotype, come what may. So the stereotype is, we don't want to win elections, regardless of the fact there is actually the right under Corbyn that threw elections to the Tories. Yeah, 100%. I mean, how far on are we from the leaked Labour report now? Uh, it, was, it was April, was it April last year it came out? It must be about 18 months. Fucking hell. Barely reported in the media, completely buried by the party. And the way that the party has been run subsequently implies that the people in charge of it now have rubber stamped the conduct of all the bureaucrats yeah. and the right of the party. Well, some uh, of the people who were actually named in the late report have been quietly readmitted as members, including, I think, Emily Oldner. Really? Um, some yeah. of them. There's nothing else like what was in that late report in the whole 
120 year history of the Labour Party is really is unprecedented. I mean, the closest analogue you can think of would be the 1983 election, where at the pre-election meeting of the NEC, where they were thrashing out the manifesto, John Golden, who was the main right wing fixer of the time. Hammer of the left. Yeah, in Hammer of the left, he goes into it in great detail. He basically let the left have whatever policies it wanted because they knew the election at that point was already lost. It wasn't so much that the right threw it. They just knew it was already lost. And the point was just to hang it around the left's neck like an albatross. It worked very well, you have to say. Do you think that's why Starmer didn't raise any objections to Labour's policy platform in 2019? Although in 2017, he apparently intervened to make the manifesto less pro-immigration. Well, Starmer lumbered us with the worst policy of the law, which was the second referendum. Well, that's absolutely so, yeah, yeah, yeah. No wonder he kept his head down in the Clause 5 meeting. I would as well. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of the stuff that was in the leaked Labour report, this is something somebody brought up the other day. Jack at I am my tour on Twitter, who does a good line in tweets about how Corbyn's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all do those tweets, but he literally just tweets like, hidden information, Jeremy Corbyn is nice. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think people wouldn't need reminding, but the way that he's been made out to be the devil incarnate, it's probably useful to have the reminder. Exactly. But I mean, he shared an extract where some people who were then senior bureaucrats at Labour HQ are talking about Corbyn's speech in the aftermath of the Manchester attack, terrorist attack in 2017 that happened during the general election. And yeah. One of them, Francis Grove White, says, My fears are that A, the speech won't go down as badly as it deserves to, because they'd already established in this conversation. They all hated Corbyn's speech. We'll get to why. But they all thought that he'd kind of breached the unwritten rules of British politics and needed to be roundly punished. Um, But it won't go down as badly as it deserves, thanks to the large groundswell of ill-informed opposition to all Western interventions. (laughs) In other words, people who can see the blindingly bloody obvious. Yes, so they were worried that Corbyn's speech would go down well with the British yeah. public. Yeah, there were people on the left who were actually advising Corbyn not to make that speech. There was a lot of nervousness about it. True. But he was fully vindicated by the fact that people can see for themselves what an absolute calamity the so-called war on terror has been. It's very funny that there were people on both left and right yeah. who thought Corbyn should not make this anti-war speech because yeah. it will make him unelectable because people do not want to hear that Western intervention rather than immigration has well, led a... to terrorist attacks. But then there's somebody on the right saying, actually, no, he shouldn't make this speech because people will agree with it. Yeah. There was nervousness about Corbyn's positions on imperialism, foreign policy in general. Obviously, NATO membership was never discussed under Corbyn. It was never called into question, even though Starmer made a point of wanking over NATO in his conference speech this year. And Trident as well, obviously, because trade unions, including Unite, tend to be pro-nuclear weapons. Not not pro-nuclear weapons as nuclear weapons, but as job creation schemes. That reminds me of how MPs would always go on TV and say, people would be like, well, Jeremy Corbyn is against Trident nuclear weapons. And these fucking shit-eating MPs would say, oh, well, our policy is to be (coughs) pro-Trident and Labour policy is decided at conference and policy is sacrosanct. Labour (laughs) conference passed a motion in support of Palestinian rights, condemning Israeli apartheid, Mm. advocating boycotts and sanctions, and... Lisa Nandy came out like five minutes later and was like, the party cannot adopt yeah. this motion. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. No, that's how sacrosanct it is now. 
they're going to make a point of doing this over the next few years. Whenever a conference passes a left-wing policy, they're going to make a point of talking it down in the press. I mean, Reeves and Starmer both did that after the Green New Deal motion was passed. Like yeah. I say, they were distancing themselves from public ownership of energy, even though it's a key plank of the GND. Yeah, I, I will point out me and Geraint did. Starmer was saying on TV when Andrew Marr was like, you pledged common ownership of energy during the leadership election. He was like, I said common ownership. That's well yeah. apart from public ownership. Me and Geraint did point that out when he was running. Yeah. He could use no, that. it was deliberately kind of vaguely worded, so it gave him quite a bit of wiggle room. Yeah, but, but no. he, he doesn't actually need that wiggle room anyway because he's just junked fucking 10 pledges anyway. Exactly. And obviously most people were going to read that and think public ownership. Yeah, and he yeah. did raise his hand when asked if he supported exactly. public ownership yeah. of energy. So why wouldn't they? I mean, obviously, yeah. we know why they wouldn't. But anyway, so these fucking party hacks continued in their conversation about Corbyn's response to the Manchester attacks. The Labour left will use that poll to claim we were on course to win. They were on course to win, obviously not referring to the party as we. We're on mm. course to win. And then Manchester happened. <laughs> And, and whether <laughs> and whether or not JC goes, lots of the membership will buy that argument. Like after the referendum, when they distorted the polling and claimed we spelt like urine <laughs> had overtaken the Tories before the quote unquote coup happened. This is the real fucking disgusting bit. Joe Greening says, if this speech gets cut through, as I think it may, again, they didn't really buy this, like, Corbyn's anti-imperialism makes him unelectable shit. They were worried people supported it. Um, It will harden normal people against us. They meant against us, as in the Labour right, (laughs) as in the Blairite warmongers, as a young, only about, what, 58-year-old Paul Mason said a couple of years ago before supporting them taking back the party. Uh, that is basically the politics of the Labour right. You know, they are social imperialists. They just hope that they can kind of snaffle a few crumbs from Empire's table and channel that into less and less ambitious social programs at home. And then this is the real fucking disgusting shit in these quotes. In the face of a terror attack, Joe Greening says, normal people do not blame foreign intervention. They blame immigration. Normal, yeah. ordinary salt of the earth racist people yeah it comes back to the discussion we were having earlier about legitimacy if you're pro-migrant if you're left-wing you are by definition not a normal person and anything you say can just be discounted he says what's more all they will hear is we don't want to respond strongly we want peace with isis (laughs) (laughs) that was actually a key pillar of owen smith's (laughs) leadership campaign that was was his attempt to outflank corbyn from the left actually yeah we'll we'll strike a peace deal with isis Yeah, I know. And Corbyn was like, no, I don't know. We wouldn't have talked. Yeah, Cor- Corbyn, looked, much, mate. Corbyn looked kind of bellicose by comparison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's incredible. Like, I mean, yeah, there probably are a bunch of fucking people in this country who think that Corbyn does support ISIS, largely thanks to the ridiculous smear campaign that accelerated after he proved in 2017 that actually he and his baggage of not wanting people blown limb from limb by shrapnel every day, that terrible baggage maybe could be turned potentially into an upside. Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that did underpin a lot of the attacks on Corbyn, namely that he was seen as being too pro-Muslim. So mm. all these people who berated him in the name of anti-racism, what actually underlaid the arguments that they were making was that Corbyn was seen as being 
too close to Muslims. And he took them seriously and viewed them as human, which seems to be a cardinal sin in British politics. There was a good article published in Jacobin just yesterday, I think, looking back on Reefgate, the controversy that, I mean, so facile to call that a gate. Mm. Uh, the Daily Mail dug up some pictures of Corbyn at a memorial ceremony commemorating the murders of, I think, around 60 Palestinians and Tunisians at the bottom yeah. of the PLO headquarters in Tunis. And this was astonishingly, because it was during the height of the Labour anti-Semitism moral panic, it was taken seriously by people who otherwise wouldn't when there was not really any basis to take this racist story about how Corbyn paid tribute to the lost lives of people from the Middle East uh, very seriously. And yeah, you're absolutely right that it does link to the thing of him being too close to Muslims. And, you know, I just saw the other day, I think it was the political sketch writer for the Financial Times was saying, huh, people seem pissed off that Starmer's talking to Peter Mandelson. Well apparently talking to Hamas is okay. I'm like, really? Still banging on about the talking to Hamas thing? The thing is, as well, when you see these really reactionary liberal journalists, you wonder how the Good Friday Agreement ever got past them. Yeah, yeah. If, if Corbyn had been the one proposing the Good Friday Agreement, they would have absolutely gone apeshit. Yeah, well, their position on Corbyn and his views on Ireland has essentially been, but yes, Tony Blair was brilliant, the Good Friday Agreement was brilliant, and obviously that involved forgiving people literally involved in the violent yeah, struggle. Yeah, letting That's... paramilitaries out of prison. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? but somebody who supported a side of the conflict through non-violent parliamentary means is completely beyond the pale. Yeah, absolutely. It just shows how warped the priorities of these people are, really. Something we haven't touched on that happened as well on the eve of Starmer's conference speech, or I think possibly during Rachel Reeves's, was the resignation of Andy MacDonald from the Shadow Cabinet. And this pretty decisively shifts the political composition of the Shadow Cabinet from almost all right wing to really, 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 really right wing. Yeah, I mean, the first Shadow Cabinet Starmer picked obviously had a smattering of representatives from the campaign group. And slowly but surely, they were all eased out. And, you know, it's kind of inevitable that that would happen. I don't think that the majority of the PLP sees these people as actually representing a legitimate strain of opinion in the party. They're just not prepared to accommodate them even as junior partners. Like people make the comparison between Starmer and Biden, the fact that Biden has been able to co-opt certain elements of the US left's program, certain US left politicians. But... It's easy for American liberals to be kind of magnanimous because they never lost control of the Democratic Party, whereas here, the UK censor did lose control of the Labour Party, and I think it really shit them up. It yeah. really made a lot of them in the PLP and actually in the media as well fear for their careers. So that's why they're so utterly determined to salt the earth and make sure that there is never any kind of repeat. Yeah, so the specific issue cited by Andy MacDonald for resigning from a shadow cabinet was that he'd been asked to go out and argue against a £15 an hour minimum wage. Yeah, that's right. They just made him eat shit, basically. They wanted him to go out and argue against a higher minimum wage and also uh, statutory sick pay raised to a, a living wage level as well. Yeah. So the point was just to make him cut ties with the left or discredit him. Yeah. But it was, it was a deliberate... The more left 
remaining member to be the face yeah of... yeah it was a deliberate calculated yeah. public humiliation and he, he was right to call that bluff and tell yeah. him to fuck off but what's been interesting about the reaction to that is there's been huge focus off the back of that should we have a 15 pound minimum wage is that viable a lot of them are pretending that he meant immediately overnight yeah, as opposed yeah. to over a couple of years there's been it, a lot of argument about that but no one's even picked up the second point he made clearly in his letter about the statutory sick pay it's as if yeah, he never said point. it yeah, like, exactly. off the back of a fucking pandemic in which the lack of proper statutory sick pay has both financially immiserated lots of people and caused unnecessary and dangerous spread during peaks of COVID. Yeah, no, it's definitely been a driver of infection levels, but you've not really heard that much about it from Starmer because whenever Starmer's had to challenge the government on anything, he's been like a rabbit in the headlights. It's like for the entire Corbyn period, all these people thought about was how to take the party back and what they would do with it once they had it, how they would stop the left from ever taking the leadership again. But in terms of putting forward a vision or a programme for the country, they've not given that any thought at all. Which is insane, because it's a complete wasteland of ideas. It's why they lost the party in the first place, and why the Owen Smith coup was such a dismal failure. Yeah, well, there's a very very well-known saying, isn't there, in politics? Never let a serious crisis go to waste. Well, Starmer's done exactly that. I mean, crises (laughs) are opportunities to redefine the political landscape and put forward ideas that otherwise might not gain traction. And yet here's Starmer on BBC Breakfast saying, uh, well, it's the wrong time to nationalise companies in the midst of a crisis. Well, well, when else are you going to fucking do it? Can you imagine if Gordon Brown had said that in the 2008 financial crisis? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's the wrong time to nationalise the banks. We're in the middle of a crisis. It's just valid. (laughs) No, you're right. I mean, I think actually because they had so much right wing credibility, the Blairites and Brownites in their heyday were more prepared to do something that might upset ideological right wingers. Obviously, I'm not trying to launder their reputation, uh, yeah. but there would have been people who would have been like, no, no, what, what do you mean? You can't bail out the banks. That's like, no, that's not done. This is a free market. You know, yeah, but, and plus New Labour, it did have an intellectual underpinning. They did take ideas seriously for a time. It's not stood the test of time. And obviously, once the financial boom ended in 2008, they were kind of up shit creek without a paddle because they couldn't channel the surpluses of a booming financial capitalism into social programs like Shorestart. And mm. that's kind of why they've been so intellectually bereft ever since. But in its day, at least New Labour did manage to deliver some social gains. It's just that that came at the cost of an absolutely disastrous and murderous foreign policy. Of course. I think there was this kind of assumption among a lot of people. Maybe kind of our circle might have been more cynical towards the Labour right. I think it's probably fair to say we definitely were. But I think a lot of people just thought, well, a few years have passed since for Labour mainstream, in quotation marks, the right and centre lost such complete touch with the party and with the mood of the members and with the voters, really. They will have learned something in the Corbyn days. They won't have reconciled themselves to the left leading the party, but they will have maybe shed some of their ideological assumptions. Uh, And they're all all just Chris Leslie in summer 2015. Yeah, exactly. No, you would think that they would take elements of the left's programme and make them their own. But even that kind of radicalism is just too much for them. They can't even co-op elements of the left programme like Biden has done because they're so determined to just wind the clock back, like you say, not just before Corbyn, but also before Ed Miliband. Oh, man, it's honestly astonishing. Like, (laughs) I can see how 
they might want to make some negative arguments about the people that came prior to them. I mean, Corbyn didn't enough, but he still did. There was a lot of criticism of previous Labour administrations, almost by implication sometimes, in terms of when we were talking about what we were doing that was new. And I think that's what a lot of people who were kind of ossified in the establishment resented about Corbynism. All this talk about we're new, we're insurgent, that kind of implied that they were these fusty old relics to be got rid of, even if we weren't directly attacking them. Mm -hmm. Um, So you need to define yourself against what happened in the past sure but it just seems incredible to me that they don't think there'll be any downsides to accepting that corbynism was just unequivocally bad that it had no redeeming features that it was a low point for the party historically yeah especially when keir starmer served in jerry corbyn's shadow cabinet exactly i mean if you're going to anathematize corbyn the obvious rejoinder from the tories is well you served under him you didn't complain that much at the time the Tories could put together a great a little clip show of Starmer saying Jeremy Corbyn was a good man. Was I, want to pay tribute, I want to pay tribute to Jeremy Corbyn in his yep. uh, leadership acceptance video. I want to pay tribute to Jeremy Corbyn, who led our party through some really difficult times, who energised our movement and who's a friend as well as a colleague. Exactly. Or at that hustings, the attacks on Jeremy Corbyn were terrible. He was vilified by the media. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's an eerie impression. I thought it was on the line then. (laughs) Thank you. Well, look, the attacks on Jeremy Corbyn in that election we've just had were terrible. And they came back at us on the door. They vilified him and they knew what they were doing and they knew why they were doing it. This city has been wounded by the media. The sun in this city are hurt for this city. And I certainly won't be giving any interviews to The Sun during the course of this campaign. What else is there? They could have him talking about the £15 an hour minimum wage for McDonald's workers. The staff at McDonald's are on strike and they're not asking the earth, they're asking for the basics. 15 quid an hour, the right to know their hours in advance and to have trade union recognition. That ought to be the norm in 21st century Britain and it will be the norm if we have a Labour government. They could have him at the Palestine Solidarity meeting. They could yeah. make it like feature length. Just yeah. this cl- all the clips of Keir Starmer lying. That's it. Like, I, don't, I don't think you can lie that much without it coming back to bite you at some point. Okay, so all the Westminster journalists are circling the wagons around Starmer and they, they're not going to make a big deal of it. But it's got to resonate with people. Like, people have got to pick up on it sooner or later because there are that many examples of him just completely contradicting himself, dropping one commitment. It's got to cut through at some point. Yeah, I mean, Bastani made a really good point on the Starmer Out panel at The World Transformed about Starmer's journey that he took on the issue of Brexit. So he supported Remain in the referendum. Then he thought that we should accept the result of a referendum. Then he supported Owen Smith, who wanted to revoke the result. Then... After 2017, he was all about accepting the result of a referendum again. Then he became Mr. People's Vote. Now, 
he's in favour of accepting the result of a referendum now that he's leader of the party and actually has responsibilities. <laughs> now he understands why Jeremy Corbyn wanted to fucking represent the entire country rather than just middle class wankers parading fucking EU flags about. <laughs> no, that's it. These people desperately feel that they should be in charge and it absolutely grieves them that they aren't. But they don't really know why they want to be in charge. There's no purpose to it other than just that they think it's their birthright and they think that they'd be good at it, but they don't really know what they would do. Yeah, it's hard to think what motivates Starmer looking at his trajectory. It looks quite nihilistic, the complete lack of principle. Just one thing I would say is I think the left in the Labour Party is actually remarkably resilient considering what it's been subjected to. Obviously, a lot of people have left, I think it's in excess of 100,000, allegedly. And I don't blame people who've walked out at all because they've got a right to be bloody angry at the way they've been treated. But there are signs of life. You know, there are people who are still sticking it out. And if they can maintain a level of organisation, if they can maintain a level of political coherence, if they can make demands that resonate with people like the Green New Deal, then there is life in the old dog, yeah. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that Starman and the right have to dominate in perpetuity. The left have won the argument on policy within yeah. the broad left. Like, as yeah, Jeremy yeah. Corbyn said, to much derision, we have determined how those issues should be framed to the extent that even as they backtrack from them, Starmer's people still must borrow some of the framing and also the basic framework of the policies, except they're quite skeletal, you know. Yeah. They're stripping the skin off the bones of the policies, it's mm-hmm. just offering us the bones. But the challenge is that the only people who aren't fucking convinced on the broad left uh, happen to be in control of the Labour Party. The only people who do still yeah. believe in all, yeah. all these neoliberal free market assumptions, all these imperialist pro-war assumptions. Uh, yeah. Obviously, all the conference motions, not all of them, obviously not the ones on party democracy, but a lot mm. of the motions passed at conference went the way that the left won. Yeah. Uh, no, all the intellectual energy is still on the left, which is, again, quite a remarkable thing when you consider what people have been put through for yeah. such a long period of time for them to still be fighting. I think that's laudable. Yeah, absolutely. The only uh, ideas the right have really are watered down ideas of what we've proposed. For sure. As Owen Jones said, they're motivated purely by factional spite. And it yeah. was funny to see some people saying how offended they were by that comment, who I see as the epitome of motivated purely by factional spite. Yeah. The thing is, like, can you imagine what these people would have been like if they'd been subject to the sort of treatment that we have for the last few years? I know, know, they, they, read, they read one critical article in The Guardian every so often and they absolutely do their nut about it. Yeah. It's, it's like whenever I write for The Guardian, I don't venture below the line too often, but the general reception is not very positive. And you just <laughs> think, well, come on, man, if you had to put up with the kind of stuff we had, you'd be a shambling wreck by the end of it. I think a lot of it is this kind of knee-jerk thing, because when I'd read below the line on The Guardian before Corbyn. I kind of yeah. stopped doing that at a point. Often one of the top rated comments, some of them would just be like total reactionary shit. Some mm. of them would be total like Guardian shit just like the meltiest crap you've ever read but some yeah. of them would be really highly rated and quite left wing and corbyn yeah and i yeah. think just once that you know proto corbyn easter and then once that became a real threat once an act a face was put on these ideals and then people like threw a lot of shit in that face i, mean, uh, I will say in partial defense of the guardian their opinion section is the best thing about the paper it is actually open to left-wing voices so there's a good debate that goes on over there. 
even if it's not quite what it was in the Seamus Milne years when they had Osama Bin Laden doing our beds for them. <laughs> it's yeah. a bit of a downgrade, isn't it, from that yeah, to Stuart Heritage? How, how can you possibly top that? <laughs> you stand on the shoulder of giants. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I should have said shoulders, but I wanted to reference Oasis. Yeah. Uh, but I guess I was saying after they put a face on these agreeable left-wing ideas and said, hate this man, then maybe fewer of those people would instinctively get behind what they'd view as Corbynista views as common sense and yeah I guess that's what a sustained campaign of delegitimization and vilification does yeah yeah I mean look the Guardian is what it is it's a liberal paper you know it's not a labor paper so you don't expect it to be too sympathetic to the ideas of the left but I do think that as a movement we need to be a lot more serious about developing our own media outlets so that we are less reliant on the likes of the Guardian and the Mirror so that we can actually reach people consistently with socialist ideas. Definitely, man. So, yeah, people should subscribe to New Socialist, subscribe to Real Politic, Tribune. Tribune. Especially real politic. Did I mention, did I mention real politic? <laughs> yeah, but no, man, it's great to have you on our left-wing media outlet. No, it's been a pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me. Yes. No, man, it's on. always good to amplify the voice of somebody we really respect. And always good to get your views, man, on That's the issues kind. of the day. Cheers, mate. Thanks very much. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, man. No uh, any, Geraint, any final words? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, say thank you and goodbye to Tom. I mean, come on, be polite. Yeah, thanks for coming on. It's good to mm. finally get you on. Thanks very much. Oh man, yeah, it's been great. I thanks guys. It's been really good. I'll try and get this one out relatively quickly. Nice one. Cheers, fellas. Safe. Peace and love. Appreciate it. Cheers. Sometimes nobody wants what you got. 
Sometimes you can't give it away I woke up this morning And I sprung at my feet I went into town with a whim I saw my father in the street At least I think it was him In the dark I hear a somber call Well, you know the hills are looking in steep I sleep in the kitchen with my feet in the hall If I told you my whole story in a week Meet me at the bottom, don't like the hustle But ring me my boots and shoes You can hang back, I'll fight your last on the front line Sing a little bit of these, what a good man blues
exciting. It's young people. It's crowdsourcing. 